Welcome to Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk. Nubian Tigers are a group of people who met at Princeton University and have continued to be friends throughout the decades. The COVID-19 pandemic and the civil demonstrations following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd by the police motivated us to harness our life experiences and professional expertise and contribute our voices to the broader discussion of the conditions of life throughout Black America. My name is Michelle Jacobs and I'm with my co-host Ray Smaltz. Before we get to today's guest, I'll turn it over to Ray. Thanks, Michelle. And for those of you listening for the very first time, the acronym W-A-K-E or WAKE stands for Wisdom, Advice, Knowledge, and Engagement. And the UP is the abbreviation for Princeton University, our alma mater, only backwards. When the late civil rights icon and longtime Congressman John Lewis was only 23 years old, he delivered an inspiring speech at the historic March on Washington in 1963 and punctuated the end of it with, Wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop and we will not and cannot be patient. This podcast aspires to wake up our listeners to some of the very same struggles within America today and across the globe. And Michelle, having just completed our election special series, one of the most important issues on the ballot this fall will be the Trump administration's management of the coronavirus or COVID-19 pandemic. As of this recording, America has over eight and a half million citizens infected, while over a quarter of a million have died. Of that total, according to the COVID-19 tracking project, Approximately 40,000-plus Black people have died, which is about one in every 1,000, or twice the rate of white Americans. In our last episode, Ray, we were looking at how COVID was impacting New York City. In this episode, we speak with Dr. Katrina Peters, who will be talking to us about what is happening out in California. Dr. Katrina Peters, MD, MPH, received her medical degree from Howard University College of Medicine and UC Berkeley School of Public Health. She is the clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco, Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital, and has been on the clinical faculty there for over 20 years. Currently, she is the medical director of inpatient forensic psychiatry at Zuckerberg, San Francisco General Hospital. And if that wasn't enough, Katrina is also the president of Alameda Contra Costa County Medical Association, her local chapter of the California Medical Association. She also serves on the National Medical Association's board as Region 6 trustee. Katrina works with students from high school level through college to help them develop an interest in careers in medicine. And she also participates in a meditation program for middle and high school students and has appeared on a television show that encourages literacy in children. Well, first of all, let me, let me thank you for being here at uh, our podcast. Thank you very much, Ray, for inviting me. Uh, I think it'll be exciting. Well, you're at UCSF, a large institution, and at at uh, at that university, what kind of problems have you had um, facing COVID crisis that uh, we're facing here in the United States? Well, uh, COVID really challenged our institution. Um, we UCSF, although it's a public institution, um, has a different clientele than the 
institution that I work at that's part of UCSF, which is San Francisco General Hospital. Um, and that is a public hospital. So our clientele um, overlap, but generally we're dealing with a much um, more severely ill, a much more socioeconomically challenged um, group. So it really required a lot of very intense work on for us to be able to uh, take care of our varying populations. And first to understand, because this is a, was a novel virus that we didn't know how to treat. We didn't have a test for it. And we didn't have a national plan on how we were to proceed. So we had to go from everything from first developing a surge plan because we were gonna to have to be able to have the capacity to expand our ICU beds, to be able to maximize our use of ventilators um, because of testing difficulties. For the first few months, we had almost no test. So you had, we were developing a symptom profile for just even being able to diagnose who had COVID and who didn't. Um, that was a very early challenge. Um, communications. Generally, um, we have a lot of meetings in the hospital, et cetera. We were not able to meet in person anymore. So our Zoom capacities had to be increased significantly so that we were able to communicate. And in fact, we um, often had daily updates. There were so many things that were changing. There were, they would basically say, this is only good until five o'clock uh, tomorrow and then we would have another update. So it required an amazing increase in our capacity to be able to get on time communication and updates and with things constantly changing. We found out that in addition to us not having testing that we really did not have appropriate and amounts of PPE or personal protective equipment. So that really hampered us. And then what equipment we did have we certainly didn't have enough for the need. And so we had to develop protocols on what they called extended use PPE. Now this extended use you had where previously, maybe there was a mask that you would wear one person to a room. And when you went to another patient, you would change to a different, a, a clean mask. Well, that had to change so that we were, people were using their mask until they got wet or dirty. They were using them five. So they had to develop entire protocols. Now, no one really know how safe those protocols were, but all of these things were things that had to be developed. Um, the supply chains were broken. There was no national plan. So these are things on the ground that, in, and it didn't just affect the healthcare providers, they're also the rest of the people in the hospital who, um, the cafeteria workers, the janitors, to be able to safely um, take care of both patients and staff during this epidemic. Um, we, as we also had to develop um, a way to take care of many patients remotely. Um, because of the capacity uh, needs, all non-emergent procedures, surgeries, et cetera, were postponed. And there had to be a way to try to treat patients as best we could. Now, although telehealth existed in the theory, in terms of for it practically being able to be used and especially to be given Medi-Cal, Medicare funding, 
all of those policies had to be adjusted both statewide and national so that we would be able to, to do those things. Then we have the problem or the challenges with patients being able to contact us and to take care of um, their health needs remotely if they could be taken care of. There were staff issues. Um, there were people who um, got sick early. There were people who did early retirement because we couldn't early on provide a safe environment for them to work on. Um, we didn't even know how to set up the protocols for how people were going to be quarantined and who could come to work when you could come back to work. So um, these are all the challenges that we had before we even got to the main thing is how do you best treat the patients who had COVID? And that was a work in progress. And early on, um, because this was a novel virus, we did not know the best um, treatments and things kept evolving. Uh, there were uh, people communicating on, uh, 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 on their email, um, trying to share best practices because again, we did not have a national coherent plan on how to manage this pandemic. So these were all of the things, and I'm sure I've left some out, that we had challenges to try to be able to address before we could uh, try to manage this pandemic. You know, as we listen to the issues that you guys had, I can remember early on uh, the Bay Area and the, all the counties that make up the Bay Area um, being the first ones to just lock everything down and keep everybody home and so on and so forth. As a matter of fact, the mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, I mean, she was all over every single news uh, uh, network. Uh, people were extolling how great the San Francisco area was, was doing, but was the success early on a coincidence? Was it the governor's quick actions or the county commissioners? Because later on, obviously, the virus affected the, the Los Angeles area really heavy uh, in the coming months uh, when the summer uh, hit. Thank you for that question, uh, Ray. Um, actually, the Bay Area, why we were successful initially, I think was due to two things. Number one, we were one of the first hotspots. Um, there's actually some uh, debate about whether, in fact, we had some first cases um, that uh, people died from that happened here in the Bay Area. Um, that we weren't aware and could, because at that time we had no ability to test for it. So um, we were seeing cases early and I think it was that combination, number one, of being an early hotspot and number two, which I think is most important about how we were successful, the nine counties in the Bay Area, along with the public health officials for those counties and the medical organizations, including the universities, all met and we worked together on how we were going to proceed. And the reason why that's so important, if you can think about um, people transmitting uh, your need for social distancing, many people in the Bay Area don't just live in one county. For myself personally, I live in Alameda County, okay, in, in Oakland. I cross the bridge every day to work in San Francisco. I may go shop in Contra Costa County. So there's so much movement in between counties. If only one county locked down or had um, 
rules, I don't think they would have been very successful because there's no way to prevent people from traveling back and forth. And in fact, that's also some of the reason why when we started opening back up, why we weren't as successful because there were different counties who had different criteria, different uh, limitations. You know, some counties were having uh, later out, have outside eating, other people were having, you couldn't eat inside at all, you don't do takeout. So we saw what happened when we were not working together. And that is actually um, a key result, I think, is what happened with us nationally. Because we had no national, coherent, consistent plan, um, you get the erratic kind of responses that we've gotten. Um, the idea of the lockdown was to buy us time. You know, we used to hear early about flattening the curve. That was our goal. We're going to flatten the curve. Well, what does that mean to flatten the curve? Okay, if you're going to have a big infection and if everyone all got sick at once, you'll have this big spike if you were to, you know, to graph that. So when you have that spike, and in fact, that's what we were observing a lot in all the horrible uh, videos and TV from New York because they had such a big spike all at once that overwhelmed their system. Okay, so our goal in flattening the curve was to, if we could, you, you're not preventing the illness, but you're slowing it down. The idea was you could slow it down enough so that you could have a chance to develop all those things I talked about earlier and be able to manage with what you have to be able to handle the um, illness effectively. Well, one of the problems with that is that all of the things that needed to be done to make sure that the curve stayed flattened did not happen. When we came open back up, we still didn't have the testing capacity that we needed. We still did not have the contact tracing and that's a pretty controversial area. The contact tracing, that was not done. Those are bedrock public health um, strategies for helping to manage communicable diseases. So we didn't have that. Okay, there was inconsistent messaging about masking, who should mask, when we should mask, how we should mask, social distancing, how we should use our other services should we, you know, is it okay to go to church? Is it only okay to go to church in the parking lot? So all of these things, we did not have a coherent plan. And therefore the virus, as you see, is just happily um, continued to increase. Now, Katrina, in our um, Nubian Tigris uh, Zoom talks, you've spoken quite frequently about the um, testing situation and the importance of testing. So I'm wondering, um, can you tell us a little bit about your thoughts on that? Testing has been our biggest Achilles heel, in my opinion. We, this illness, we did not understand initially that um, there was a certain significant proportion of people who would be asymptomatic transmitters or pre-symptomatic transmitters. That is asymptomatic, as they actually have the disease, they can transmit it, but they don't have any significant symptoms, so they don't know they have it. And then pre-symptomatic, these are people that are ultimately going to develop symptoms, but in fact, they're able to transmit the disease before they have symptoms. So early on, when we didn't have enough testing, 
and we didn't realize the role that those people played in transmitting the disease. We were just doing, you know, symptom screening, you know, temperature checks, you know, to see as we learn more about all the different symptoms. But those are people who have active disease at symptoms. So if you don't have a test that can identify when people can spread the disease earlier, then you're still going to be having a lot of spread. The other issue around testing is, again, because we didn't have a national uh, coherent testing strategy, is there different kind of tests? There's all kinds of tests. People are getting tests still from China, half of them that didn't work. There are people trying to develop saliva tests. There's you know stool tests. But right now, the two most tests that are used are one, um, there's what they call antigen tests. And so they basically, if you have symptoms, those tests are pretty rapid and pretty, pretty inexpensive, and they can quickly tell whether you have the illness or not. The problem with that kind of test is that it has what's called a high false negative rate. And so it's very often, if you're pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic, it may not catch those infections or if it's very early on. So you may get a test and even though it's available pretty quickly, you may find out that in fact, you're not negative and that you actually have it. And in fact, that's the kind of testing machines that they were using at the White House. So it's quite possible that there were many people who got negative tests, but they may have been in that window when in fact they could um, transmit. And in fact, the manufacturer themselves um, has said that the test should be ideally used with someone with symptoms. So the, the less symptoms they have, the less likely to be accurate. The other type of tests, um, which people are familiar with, I mean, with the big swab, et cetera, that was also challenging, the uh, polymerase chain reaction or PCR tests, those are much more sensitive and much more accurate. But here's the difficulty with them. Number one, don't have enough of them. And number two, it's uh, we don't have the lab capacity to process them rapidly. So what was happening, even if you could get one of those tests, and even though if all things being equal, they could process it in a day, but because of lab capacity and other different issues, people were not getting the test results for a week, 10 days, and more. So what's happening in that time period? So without a clear quarantine or other type of restriction, people don't, I mean, if they're not sick, they're, they're bouncing around, you know, giving it to somebody. So that has in a nutshell been one of our great challenges. There's a third type of testing called antibody testing, but that only tells you whether you've had it. And we don't yet know exactly when people um, develop antibodies sufficient enough for them to uh, have that test to be positive. But you cannot use that test for diagnosis during the active part of the infection. So because we had so many challenges with testing, and we still do, the amount of testing that we need to do every day in this country, um, about 400 million people, there should be at least a million tests done a day and you know, all around in different places. And we have not yet met that standard. So what does that mean? It means that we still have a large number of people who are asymptomatic, 
pre-symptomatic who are still spreading disease. And if we're not having contact tracing, because that was another way you could maybe catch them, if we're not someone who's been diagnosed, if you can't go con you know, uh, identify all of their contacts, then you don't have another way. That's another way you can maybe identify some of the pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic people, but we haven't done that. So um, without the testing, um, they're now having, they're trying to make some at-home tests um, that might increase our capacity. Um, there are some places where they are measuring temperatures in a group, like in, a, in an area to see if they see a significant, if they can pick up um, an active you know, infection moving in a community. Um, there were some colleges that were testing the school samples out of the sewage, that if they were getting a large amount in a certain dorm, then they could go and test that dorm. But again, we're back to testing again. So that's been our great limitation, our great Achilles heel, and um, it's gonna to continue to challenge us. So the president says that the number of positive cases is, is, has increased because the testing has increased. And it's not that more people have COVID, it's just because more tests are being done. So what would be your professional opinion about that? When you're doing mass testing, if the, per, if the percentage of people who are infected, if that is not going up, then that tells you that the incidence is not going up. But if you're doing a, let's say if you test 100 people and 50 of them are positive, and then last week only 20 were positive percentage, that's showing you not just that because we tested more, it's showing you that the percentage of people who have the illness is increasing. Okay, well, I just wanted to get that contradiction with science <laughs> in there. And I also wanna give you an opportunity, um, and I, sh I know I'm gonna mess up uh, this name, so correct me if I'm wrong, don't, don't feel bad about that. I know you're also president of the Mm, Almeida Contra Costa. I'll get, I'll get it. ACCMA. ACCMA. <laughs> we even have a cheer. Okay. All right. So tell us about that uh, because those doctors are actually not associated with big institutions. So I'm wondering what difference you see between the things that are available to you at your institution versus what these uh, small, yeah. small, small and practice yeah. doctors are experiencing. Yeah. Um, actually, it's a mixture. So Alameda Contra Costa County is one of the um, county societies from California. It's about 5,000 doctors and people practice in all kinds of, um, of settings. You have someone like myself who practices in a hospital setting. We have large numbers of people who belong to Kaiser, but they practice in different settings involved with Kaiser. And then we have a lot of the private doctors, people who may be in solo and small practice. And so that has been a great challenge um, because for people who weren't directly working with a large um, institution, there was the need for us to get out information. In fact, we developed, a, developed what we called the kitchen cabinet, which was our COVID task force to do some of the same things that we talked about um, that the university had to do. That still had to be transmitted to the community um, because they didn't have PPE. Um, many of them didn't have PPE. They didn't have the ability to see patients remotely because they had not yet been involved with telehealth. They did not know 
Um, so we had to make up webinars, seminars for them to know so they could have what equipment to get, so they could have um, how to bill for it. Um, then how were they gonna structure their practices so that they could safely see people? Um, in this, there are people who, um, particularly those in solo and small practice, who really had to modify what they did. And out of that, um, a number of practices failed. Um, they uh, closed. There were people who did early retirement because the margins of being able to operate the practice you know, were so small. And now you had this major um, challenge without any assistance. And the uh, government did try to provide some loans and you know, the state, but none of those were adequate. Um, we did two distributions of PPE um, that we were able to get from the state, but that wasn't until June. So people were still you know, doing the best. Their supply chains for all of their supplies were broken because so much of our supplies you know, come from out of the country at some point. So people had no way to get supplies. They had no way to get PPE. Um, they had to figure out how to try to take care of their patients remotely and they didn't have the systems in place to do it. Um, this of course affected our solo and small practices for African-American physicians um, uh, most significantly. And I don't know how we're going to, you know, when we get further past this acute phase, how many people are still going to be um, still standing. Um, so it was quite a challenge. And um, I think that this is one of the things like where the county medical associations were able to be very helpful. We, we shared practices. We've been sharing webinars. And then in the midst of all of this came all of the, the uh, issues around uh, social justice and systemic racism that further exacerbated all the problems we were having. So um, it's, been, it's been challenging all along. Um, and I, um, for those who had not participated in organized medical societies, um, this was really a time for them to try to do their best they can because once those practices go, and remember, they're taking care of a lot of people who are, you know, in our communities. Once they go, it's very difficult to get them back. That's a sobering thought, Katrina. And if I can just add one more factor that's been layered on top of that mess, you're also dealing with the forest, the fires, the wildfires. So in a little short way, can you tell us how the wildfires have further aggravated the situation that you're experiencing in California? Yes, it's this. I don't know if we're supposed to get the seven plagues. I hope it's just due to three plagues, but um Beware the locusts. Yes, the, the <laughs> the locusts. Well, you know, there were locusts that were in there the were. southeast United States this lately. So I hope maybe that's get our, our number up to five so we don't have too many more. So wildfires and the, and the subsequent problems have exacerbated many of the challenges we had with trying to fight COVID. Respiratory symptoms such as like dry cough, sore throat, difficulty breathing are also the same symptoms that people get with um, both wildfires and being exposed to COVID. If you have a pre-existing lung disease, then the 
wildfires are going to make that worse. And there is some question about whether even in healthy people being exposed to all the pollutants and toxins of wildfire smoke can irritate your lungs sufficiently and cause inflammation um, that will affect your immune system that might make you more susceptible to COVID. The mask that we wear for COVID, now that's usually we're not going around with masks. We're wearing masks. However, the cloth coverings and the surgical masks are not adequate protection against wildfire smoke. For those you need an N95, but we are already having a significant shortage of N95 masks previously because of all the challenges of being able to treat COVID. So it really is not a good mix. And as you know, um, for example, in, ch in children, African-American children in urban areas have some of the highest rates of asthma to begin with before you start putting wild smoke, I mean, uh, wildfire smoke um, in their lungs. Um, some people may say, well, they're living in the city and the wildfires away. Yes, well, even though the fires are, you know, 50, 60, 90 miles away, the way the wind um, in the atmosphere um, transmits the smoke, it can go right into um, the urban areas. And in fact, we, some of you all may have seen some of the, you know, otherworldly um, zombie apocalypse pictures of the San Francisco Bay Area um, a few weeks ago. Wildfires have also uh, exacerbated our housing shortages and problems with emergency shelters. So generally when people evacuate and they go, they'll go to an emergency shelter, um, but because of COVID, we're not having people go to those shelters because of the need for social distancing. So they're trying to have uh, people are being sent to hotels. There's usually not enough hotel space in the areas where the fires are. So there may be sent far away from where they actually live. And this complicates their access to further social assistance um, because they're not even in their own county anymore. So um, these are continual challenges that we are, are trying to address. Um, but in the middle of COVID, um, it's, it is a, it's a big challenge. That sounds like a lot to handle, Katrina. And really, we wish you the best and, you know, keep coming to our bi-weekly Zoom call so you can get your de-stress quota <laughs> <laughs> so that you can make it through. Now, we don't have time for it today, but I just did want to alert the audience to the fact that you also uh, know something about the uh, mental health care of prisoners. So um, at a later date, I want to make sure you come back to the show so that we can talk about that. But for right now, please hang out, stick around so that we can have you added into our roundtable discussion after our next guest. Thank you so much, Michelle and Ray. It was great. And I'm looking forward to coming back. On behalf of Wake Up with Nubian Tigers Talk podcast, we'd like to thank Dr. Katrina Peters, Princeton University class of 1975, and Medical Director of Inpatient Forensic Psychiatry at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital for all her contributions to our episode. Don't forget to join us for our next podcast where we continue our COVID-19 conversation with Dr. Janice Herbert Carter, Princeton University class of 1977, and Professor of Medical Education and Family Medicine 
at Morehouse School of Medicine and the impact of the coronavirus on black and brown communities, as well as the importance of the pandemic on this upcoming election. If you enjoyed what you heard today, visit our website, NubianTigersPodcast.com. In addition to the podcast, we also post a resource page for each subject to provide additional sources of information. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at NubianTigers, written as one word. We are on YouTube on the Nubian Tigers podcast channel. And do you have a favorite podcast service? Well, we're probably on it. You can subscribe to our podcast on Anchor FM, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Radio Public, Stitcher, and Breaker. Just look for Nubian Tigers Talk. Looking forward to sharing some knowledge with you next time. Wake up, wake up, wake up.